G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants and what manner of ancient biblical goodness are we going to explore this time? Well, as our listeners will know, we are deep into Genesis 3 at the moment, and we're at the point where God begins to dish out the consequences for the breaking of the commandment concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And although we've all heard this story a million times, especially if you've grown up in the church like I have, it's still somewhat surprising to see the way that God deals with this situation. Let's read the text and then we'll dive in. This is Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I have a feeling we're only going to get through half of this today. This passage has a really interesting way to start because although God is addressing the serpent, he is referred to as the Lord God, which, as we know, is the title used by God in situations where there exists some kind of an agreement or a covenant between God and the other party. Sure. So what's going on here then? Is the author alluding to the covenant exists between God and the humans, or is he instead talking about some kind of relationship between God and the serpent? Well, what we know is that in our previous reading of Genesis 2, we learned that this title, the Lord God, is used to remind the listener that there exists an understanding between God and the man who was given a status and a function by God, complete with instructions, including a prohibition against wrongdoing. This prohibition carried with it a consequence for violation. We now see similar language in play in this exchange between God and the serpent, although we're not given the terms of the relationship that exists between them, nor are we enlightened as to the nature of that agreement. What we do have is the pronouncement of consequence as a result of the actions of the serpent. And that tells us not only that there's some kind of relationship of one form or another between God and the serpent, But it also tells us that the serpent has broken that agreement, which is what has brought him under condemnation. The consequence is different to that pronounced for the man. In the case of the human, the consequence for violation of the commandment was death. But when God speaks to the serpent, he does not invoke death. Instead, God pronounces a curse. Yeah, so so why actually is that? So how come when God spoke to the man, he said he would die, but then he actually doesn't die? And when God speaks to the serpent, he doesn't even say that the serpent will die. So the serpent gets a curse, the man doesn't. Can you explain what's happening here? Well, that is exactly what we're going to figure out here as we go through this episode today. And as a starting point, we need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about curses. And by curses, uh, we're not talking about swear words, right? Not even a little bit. A curse is a particular kind of statement connected to the concept of destiny. Throughout the Bible, we find examples where God delivers a pronouncement of destiny upon a person or a group. Sometimes these pronouncements of destiny are delivered by people who represent God or even by representatives of other gods. We even have cases where the gods do this on behalf of the Most High God, And I think that might be a good place to start. Let's have a look at 1 Kings chapter 22 and verses 13 to 23. The messenger who went to call Micaiah instructed him, 
Look, the words of the prophets are unanimously favourable for the king. So let your words be like theirs and speak favourably. The messenger wants Micaiah to say nice things and blow a bit of smoke just to keep the king happy. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, I will say whatever the Lord says to me. And that is the prophet's job, after all. So he went to the king and the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth-Gilead for war or should we refrain? Micaiah told him, march up and succeed. The Lord will hand it over to the king. In other words, you want to hear good news? Fine, here's your good news. Live long and prosper, blah, blah, blah. But the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear not to tell me anything but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now the king knows that as much as he hates Micaiah for being the only one who dares to tell the truth and deliver the bad news, he really can't afford to ignore it. So Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let everyone return home in peace. In other words, if it please my lord the king, the king is going to die. Long live the king. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies good about me, but only disaster? Micaiah's like, well, duh, you asked, so I told you, and here's how you know that I'm telling the truth. Then Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and the whole heavenly army was standing by him at his right hand and at his left hand. This is what validates the message of a prophet. He's authenticated by an experience where he sees the Lord seated in the divine council. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one was saying this and another was saying that. Then a spirit came forward, stood in the Lord's presence and said, I will entice him. This is one of the lesser Elohim giving a suggestion as to how he would get this thing done. God is interested in hearing what he has to say. So he's like, tell me more. As I mentioned many times before, God likes to do things in collaboration with his creation. The Lord asked him, how? He said, I will go and become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you will certainly entice him and prevail. Go and do that. So this spirit comes up with the idea and God evaluates it, considers the possible outcome, says, yeah, that's going to work. Let's do that. You see, the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has pronounced disaster against you. It's important to remember that only God gets the credit for what happens, even though there were others involved in the creative process. But notice that there is a pronouncement of disaster, which, as we know when we continue reading the passage, comes to pass pretty quickly afterward. Sure enough, King Ahab died in the battle, even though he thought he might outsmart God by disguising himself. He doesn't even get killed deliberately. He just gets hit by a random arrow fired in the battle that somehow manages to find a gap in his armour. Yep, when your number's up, your number's up, I guess, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. That's destiny, and that's the power of a curse, but we can't forget that all of this is subject to God's sovereignty. The divine council met to determine how this was going to work out, and the prophet was a witness to that decision-making process, and he delivered the message to the king. Nothing that the king could do would change that destiny as long as he was determined to carry out that course of action. That leaves open the question of what happens if you change your mind and you don't go ahead and do the thing you were planning to do. In other words, if you change your mind, will it change the outcome? And the short answer to that is 
Sometimes. What do you mean by sometimes? I thought destiny was unavoidable. It is unavoidable. It is your destiny. We'd uh, eventually get a Star Wars reference in there. But it, it's kind of funny, actually, how the dark side always talks about things in terms of destiny, but the Jedi talk about things in terms of responsibility of doing the right thing. Mm. Could it be that the Jedi understand something about living in keeping with the principles of blessing, but the Sith have a mindset designed to absolve them of any guilt and wrongdoing by claiming predestination? Sorry, Calvinists. Divine exhaustive determinism made me do it. <laughs> now it's time for another passage that will get us a bit closer to what we're looking for. This is a pretty good representation of what we're talking about here because we're going to find that the story as a whole does a really good job of explaining the dynamics of these pronouncements of destiny. I'm talking about the story of Balaam, prophet for hire. Or in other words, he's your prophet for profit. Touche. The whole story goes for three chapters, and we haven't got the time to read the whole lot, but this is how it starts. This is the beginning of Numbers, chapter 22. The Israelites travelled on and camped in the plains of Moab, near the Jordan, across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at that time, he sent messages to Balaam, son of Beor, at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. Balak said to him, Look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. And so the king of the Moabites is looking for someone to get an advantage over the people of Israel because he feels threatened by them. And he's hoping that Balaam will be able to contact the gods on his behalf and get from them a negative pronouncement of destiny, or in simple terms, a curse that will make Israel easy to defeat. So the deal is that if some divine power makes this pronouncement of destiny, then it has to happen. This is your basic divine council theology at work here. The gods meet in their council and they decide what's going to happen on the earth and they decide for things to happen in order to make that preferred destiny come to pass. But Balak has a problem because he doesn't seem to realise that these people worship the most high God and that means that he is up against the leader of the divine council. So he says, please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. We can see here some of Balak's understanding of prophecy in this idea that the edict of the prophet will have some effect on the people of Israel that they'll be helpless to resist. He's hoping that this will be good for him and bad for Israel, and he's prepared to pay for this destiny-on-demand service. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. He said to them, spend the night here and I will give you the answer the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. You'll notice in your translation that we have the word Lord in all caps, which means that the original text has Yahweh here. And that means that Balaam is not practicing divination with the gods of the pagans, but he is in contact with the most high God. We can't infer from that that Balaam is loyal to Yahweh, but he does seem to be some kind of mercenary prophet. In 1400 BC, a crack prophecy unit was sent to Pethor by the Divine Council for the crime of divination. This man promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Moabite underground. Today, still wanted by the government, he survives as a prophet of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find him, maybe you can hire Balaam. 
featuring Mr. T as B.A. Balak. I pity the fool. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Then God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. Then God said to Balaam, You are not to go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they are blessed. And now we learn something really important about the nature of blessing and cursing. Since destinies are determined by the divine council, and since Yahweh the Most High God is head of that council, it means that no two pronouncements of destiny can be contradictory, and that means that somebody who has been blessed cannot be cursed, vice versa. But we need to remember that even pronouncements of destiny from the divine council itself can still be influenced by the person in question. What that means is, a blessed person could change their behaviour and become cursed as a result, or the other way around. And that's what happens in the story of Balak versus Israel. When we looked at the previous story about King Ahab, we saw someone who was set in their ways, and even though it was explained to him exactly how this was going to work out, it did not sway him from continuing on his course of action. Even though he tried to disguise himself, it didn't work, because he persevered along the same path. It's a different story, though, when we consider the situation with Balaam and the Israelites. Balaam understands how these dynamics work, so in order to give Balak the result he is after, he can't just put a curse on people who are blessed. Instead, he has to make the people who are blessed upset God so that God will curse them. Basically, Balaam knows that the blessing is conditional on covenant-keeping by Israel, so if he can get them to break the covenant, then that will break the blessing, and Balak will get his chance to defeat them. This is Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. By changing the behaviour of the people that God had blessed, Balaam was able to bring them under a curse, and he didn't even have to curse them himself. Okay, so how does all of this connect back to the situation in Genesis 3, though? So this explains how blessings and curses work and what their conditions are. And now when we go back to Genesis 3 and we look at blessings and curses, we can see why certain destinies are given the way that they are. The man and the woman had previously been blessed, as we saw in Genesis 1, and that blessing came in the context of producing offspring. So when God turns his attention to the humans in Genesis 3, he does not put a curse on them because they're already blessed, and God will not contradict himself. And that should give us a hint that God's plan for working all of this mess out is going to be connected to the promise of offspring. Because the other choice that God could have made here is to say, well, you violated the terms of our agreement, therefore I am nullifying my original blessing, and that doesn't contradict my word because you broke our agreement. So, boom, now you can't have kids. And it looks like the serpent was hoping for that outcome, or possibly he thought that God would just kill the humans. But God's decision to employ mercy toward the man and his wife probably had a lot to do with not just his love for them, but the fact that the serpent had done the wrong thing in the first place. As I mentioned earlier, the use of covenant terminology in the name of the Lord God being used in this verse and the consequence that God gives to the serpent because of what he's done indicates strongly that there was some kind of an arrangement between God and the serpent which the serpent has violated. That violation leaves this divine rebel open to the pronouncement of a curse, which is going to negatively impact his destiny. And it's worth remembering at this point something which touched on last week in the Q&A segment, which is that we're reading an archetypal story. That means that the curse placed upon the serpent 
does not apply only to him, but to all of his kind. And that's good news for us. So anyway, we went through all of that just so that we could understand why God says to the servant, because you have done this, you are cursed. Now we have a bit of an idea of what that means. So the next question that you might have is, what sort of curse is this? And how does it work? You know, Tim, I was just thinking, what sort of curse is this? And also, how does it work? I'm so glad you asked because I was just going to say this anyway. So if you ask something different, then that would have made things pretty awkward. I mentioned once or twice in this season that there is a bit of an Egyptian flavour to this story, which really comes out at certain points in this chapter of Genesis. The flavour. I like flavour. I like cinnamon. Uh, well, I was thinking more along the lines of literary motifs, but... It's funny that you should mention a spice that was used in embalming the dead because uh, what God has to say to the serpent has a lot to do with the ancient understanding of death. But before we get to the part about death, we need to ask, what is the deal with this language of being cursed above the animals? And in my best Seinfeld voice, what is the deal? All right, well, I, I suppose I was getting that. Uh, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Okay, easy. Oh, I wasn't cursing you, I was reading the Bible. Oh, right. Uh, so you were saying? Right, yeah. As far as I recall, there's no mention of anyone or anything being cursed prior to this point. So how can God say that the serpent is cursed above all of these animals? If you cast your mind back to Genesis 1 and the series of episodes that we did around the nature of the different living things that God created in our first series on the podcast, you might recall that there were two groups of living things that God blessed and one group of living things that God did not bless. And if you flip back to Genesis 1 and have a quick read of the second half of the chapter, you'll notice that the land-dwelling animals didn't get a blessing, even though the birds and the fish did, as well as the human beings. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And if you weren't paying attention to that text, it would be so easy to, to miss that fact. I totally picked up on it, of course. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Who said I didn't? Yeah. And uh, we talked at some length about the how the symbolism of Genesis 1 portrayed the birds and fish as representative of divine beings that inhabit the spiritual realm. They live in the places where we can't go. They can do things that we can't do. And here's where we need to be careful that we don't apply those metaphors too rigidly because it'll easily mess up the work that the author is doing if we get too literal about this whole thing. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, the serpent is called a serpent in Genesis 3 because the word nakash has connections to divination and to divine glory and to the wisdom and longevity that was generally associated with snakes in the ancient Near East. All that stuff is important to the narrative as we've been discovering so far this season. But that doesn't mean that the serpent does not belong to the category of sea creatures or flying things that we find in Genesis 1. We need to remember that the intent of the metaphor is more important than the language of the metaphor. So... If this divine rebel fits in different contexts using different language, that doesn't change his identity or his scientific taxonomy. This isn't a debate about whether or not the serpent was a land creature or a sea creature or an amphibian or something. So he's not really a sea snake or something then? No, we're talking about using symbolic language for the purposes it was intended for and definitely not for trying to find some physical creature that fits the description. The divine beings in Genesis... One, are described in the language of sea creatures and flying things because of the concept of accessibility. Basically, as I said, it comes down to who can go where, and we as humans can't go underwater or up in the air and still live. Divine beings can inhabit places where we can't go because of our embodied mortality. The whole chapter is about accessibility because it's about sacred space. 
And we have already discussed the way that the serpent in Genesis 3 is described as a divine being. So we should be able to see how, without mixing our metaphors, we can arrive at an understanding of the status of the divine rebel. The divine beings were blessed by God initially, but as we're finding out today, that blessing is contingent on obedience. And obedience is a product of loyalty. The fact that God pronounces a curse on the basis of the serpent's action, as stated when he says, because you have done this, shows that the blessing depended on the loyalty of the serpent, and that loyalty seems to have gone up in smoke at the moment he carried out the deception of the woman. So the serpent is cursed above all land animals because land animals had no blessing. And that means that the serpent is worse off than someone that had never been blessed. And that is regardless of the fact that as a divine being, he had previously been blessed at creation. That's a really bad position to be in. The previous statement of divine blessing and positive destiny is now nullified and a negative future lies ahead for the serpent. You should be starting to see now how important it is to derive your eschatology from the text. I could choose to go on a little side rant here about the way that these translations so often use the wrong terms for the animals in passages like this. You've got the text saying livestock when it really means beasts and then you have beasts of the field in a place where it doesn't say beasts at all but all living things of the field but I won't moving on. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. What on earth does that mean? Okay, so I mentioned this Egyptian context and didn't elaborate on that, but now it's time to have a look at it because it's going to help us understand why God would tell a snake to crawl on its belly. And Egyptian stuff is going to be familiar for ancient Israelites who not only came out of Egypt at the Exodus, but had frequent interactions with Egypt through the course of their history. Oh, this is the bit where God chops the serpent's legs off, and that explains why snakes don't have legs anymore, right? Uh, no. Even though that was the tradition that I was raised in, and we were taught that as kids, that is absolutely the last thing on the author's mind if we're being honest readers of the text. There's just no way that we could arrive at a conclusion like that. We already talked about why you shouldn't try to impose literalism on these stories because of the highly symbolic imagery. But even outside of that, this is a theological text designed to convey important spiritual truth to the hearers of God's word. So what makes us think that this would be a good opportunity in the text to talk about the biological construction of reptiles and some sort of explanation as to why they are the way they are? Yeah, that would seem like a really weird place to uh, put that little bit of information. If God really wanted to explain the nature of certain natural phenomena, then we would get a book in the Bible that just says that. And it would say that the purpose of the text is to explain why things are the way they are. Uh, that's obviously not the case. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we have a lot of that, particularly in fundamentalism. And you have people reading the primeval history as if it was written down just so that we could get an explanation of where rainbows come from and why men should have one less rib than women and all that kind of nonsense. This text has absolutely nothing to do with claiming to explain why snakes don't have legs or even trying to tell us if the serpent in the garden had legs or anything like that. Just forget the legs already. Let, let's go to ancient Egypt. So I'm going to give you some examples of curses against serpents, which come from the pyramid texts of Eunice. I was going to give you some more from the pyramid texts of Teti, but they get a bit graphic, so I will spare you the weirdness, and my wife told me not to say penis on air, so I won't. Anyway, here are a few of these Egyptian spells for your listening pleasure. This comes under the title, Spells Against Snakes and Scorpions. So, pyramid text number 226. 
which is the first one of the pyramid texts of Eunus. And it says, Plat has been entwined by Plat. The toothless calf that emerged from the garden has been entwined. Earth, swallow up what has emerged from you. Monster, lie down, crawl away. And we've got another one here. This is Pyramid Text 233 from the same collection. The cobra that came from the earth has fallen. The fire that came from Nu has fallen. Fall down, crawl away. And the next one, Pyramid Text number 234. On your face, you on his coil. Go down on your vertebra, you in his undergrowth. Go back for me, you who jubilate with her two faces. Please take a bit of... Uh, interpretation. Uh, pyramid text number 298. The sun will appear with his effective uraeus atop him. That's a kind of snake, the uraeus. We, we talked about that before. It's the uh, Egyptian cobra. Uh, against this snake that comes from the earth, you under Eunice's fingers, he shall cut off your head with this knife, which is the hand of her who has Mafdet's face. He shall drag out those which are in your mouth and milk your poison with those four strings that trail behind Osiris's sandals. Monster, lie down. Bull, crawl away. All right, no more weird cryptic Egyptian spells. Notice in that first spell, the snake is also called a calf and a monster. And in the last one, the snake is also referred to as a monster and a bull. No contradiction here. This is symbolic. There was even one that called the serpent a fire. Anyway, the point we should be taking from these examples, and there are a lot more of them, is that the command given to the serpent is one that forces him to retreat and go away in a submissive posture rather than one of aggression and attacking and opposition. God is basically telling him to stop this adversarial behavior. I'm being deliberately suggestive here, if you're picking up my language, because it's not only John the Revelator who connects the serpent in the garden with the entity known as Satan in the New Testament, although John is the only one who comes out and says it explicitly. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, which says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, we've already looked in some detail at how Paul uses the Garden of Eden story as an archetypal narrative. And now we see the extension of that to the use of this head-crushing terminology, which has its biblical origin quite obviously in Genesis 3. Notice that according to Paul, it is God who crushes Satan under your feet. You see how in the original statement that God makes, it's the seed of the woman who will trample on the serpent's head. And in traditional Christian theology, we interpret that as being the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and defeated Satan on the cross. But in Paul's use, it is the church whose feet he's referring to, and yet God still does the crushing. This means the church is doing the work of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are his feet. Unlike the ancient Egyptians, we're not using magic and spells and curses to do this. So what we can see in Paul's example is how he has connected the instruction of God in this curse which directs the serpent to retreat from an adversarial position with the adversarial nature of this divine being. And this is how he arrives at the Hebrew term Satan, which means adversary. Although that connection is not made in the Hebrew Bible, you can see how Paul is using the Hebrew Bible to get there. And in a similar way, 
Paul is viewing the Hebrew Bible in a certain light in order to see God as the seed of the woman, which is a connection that he can only make through Jesus Christ. I will leave the Christology alone for now and get back to Genesis 3. We've seen how God has cursed the serpent and commanded him to retreat, but now we have to figure out what is meant by eating dust. We know that snakes do not eat dust, and it would be foolish to think that ancient people thought they did. I'm pretty sure ancient people on the whole knew a lot more about snakes than we do because of the higher level of exposure they would have had in a far less urban setting than ours. So if everybody knows that snakes do not eat dust, then what do we do with this statement? What does it mean? And we talked about dust on the podcast last season, I think. Yeah, that's right. We certainly did. And do you remember what was so significant about dust and what it meant in the context of biblical symbolism? Something to do with human populations, how people are numerous, like dust. And we talked about how Adam was formed or chosen from that dust and how he was taken out of that place and God put him in the garden. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So where is the dust located? Outside the garden. So the serpent has just been told to retreat and crawl away, and his new destiny that God has pronounced upon him is that he will literally bite the dust. Yes, and uh, I, I think we're not supposed to uh, understand that in the sense of you know falling down dead. As some people might use that expression today, but what does it actually mean? Does it mean that he eats people? Oh, well, it's a queen reference, obviously. Serpent walks warily down the street with his brim pulled way down low. Ain't no sound because he got no feet. A forked tongue ready to go. Are you ready? Are you ready? For uh, nah, sorry. The, uh, remember that the language of eating is designed to give this idea of assimilating something into yourself to make it part of you. The serpent's going to go outside the garden and find the people out there, and he's going to try to get them to join him and be on his side as adversaries against God and the people that God's chosen. And the verse ends with the phrase, all the days of your life. That is an ominous phrase to be using when addressing a divine being. He might be immortal now, but it won't be that way forever. You know, honestly, I'm just really glad that you stopped singing and even more glad that uh, I can't see you wearing a yellow singlet and a big moustache. Who says I'm not? So, yeah, that is a bit of an overview of the first half of this curse that God pronounces on the serpent. We've just explored verse 14 in detail and touched a bit on verse 15, but we're going to get into that in more depth next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Yeah, and that's uh, going to be another interesting uh, episode. Can't wait for that. But in the meantime, it's time for your questions as we get into our Q&A segment. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Okay, well, we have a few questions today in a rapid fire round. It's no prizes. Uh, of giant questions. Uh, and the first one comes from Emily Dixon, who asked, how tall was Jesus? Google isn't any help. Ah, very funny. Thanks, Emily. Well played. Uh, there you go. You got your question on the show, and that's about all the dignity it is going to receive. Uh, for those who haven't figured it out, Emily sent this one as a joke. And since we're good sports, I thought I'd make sure that we put it on air so we can all have a laugh. Emily's one of the hosts of the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, one of our label mates at the Raven Creek Social Club. And we were having a bit of a laugh in the chat in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group page. Actually, it started in the Raven Creek Paddle Store group, 
where somebody posted a meme about late night Google searching and the silly things we look up online when we can't sleep. And uh, yeah, that's why if you're not already involved in some of the social aspects of the Raven Creek Social Club, you really should jump online, get involved in the conversation, have a laugh with us, maybe send me a question. You never know, I might just put it on the show. So uh, anyway, I hope this next question is a little bit more educational. <laughs> yes, I hope so too, although that was uh, pretty funny. Thank you, Emily. Uh, and while we're on the topic of interacting with the show, it's not long now until we hit uh, 50th episode. Wow. And we would love to hit your questions, comments, and feedback on the podcast so far. So please make the time today to send something in so that you can contribute to the show and have your say. We would love to hear what you reckon. Um, so you can get hold of us on the socials or send an email via the website giantanswers.com and uh, now with all of that out of the way we can move on to our next question Eddie asked this one were the dinosaurs created by the Nephilim as part of some kind of genetic engineering project oh yeah it certainly is going to be a rapid fire round of questions today because I can see that none of these are going to take a lot of my time uh, we have talked in previous episodes about the idea of genetic engineering in the ancient world so I'm going to refer our listeners to earlier episodes throughout the course of this current season Maybe we have addressed that in some detail, but to keep it brief, the greatest technology that the Bible talks about is probably the advent of metallurgy, as described in Genesis 4, which comes a good deal earlier than the commonly accepted timeframes that you hear about in mainstream science, in particular, the advent of working with iron. And again, the idea of genetic tampering and that kind of thing is the result of the misreading of a succession of ancient texts that borrow on earlier traditions, that had their origins in things like violence and the eating of meat. That's what Genesis 6 describes and what the book of First Enoch elaborates on. Later books like Jubilees and the late forgery that we know as Jasher further elaborate on these ideas, but the meaning seems to be lost in translation so that it might sound to our modern ears like some kind of mixing of animals. It's probably nothing more than the breeding of mules or something like that. Again, I covered this earlier, so go back and listen to the earlier episodes of the podcast. However, I did not talk about dinosaurs. That's a new one for this podcast. The best evidence that we have for the time when dinosaurs lived suggests many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years earlier than the advent of the human species. I don't buy into the idea of these allegedly side-by-side footprint impressions of dinosaurs and human footprints that are made to suggest that they coexisted in the same period of time. And again, going back to earlier episodes of the podcast, you can listen to the early episodes in season one to get an idea of why I don't believe that a close reading of the biblical text necessitates a young earth. Also, do not subscribe to the idea that the creation week is meant to say that every beast that ever lived began to exist in the material sense within the same seven-day period, whether it was millions of years ago or 6,000 years ago or last Tuesday. The Bible does make it quite clear that the Nephilim came about after a period of significant expansion of the human population which is based on about as straightforward a reading as you can get of Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4. There is no evidence that the dinosaurs were alive at this time, either biblically or scientifically, so I think that should make it fairly clear that the dinosaurs predated the Nephilim and therefore they were not created by them. So, yeah, there you go, Eddie. Thanks for submitting the question. I'm sorry it's not a really exciting answer, but even if we ignore the mainstream scientific narrative, we can't support it from the Bible either. And I think that fact alone should give us a fairly strong indication that science and the Bible do, in fact, agree on this issue. Let's take our next question. 
All right. Well, this is our third and final question for today. Joshua asked, is there any biblical proof to support the claim that people before the flood from Adam to Noah were actually giants? Okay, this is an interesting question. I get this from time to time, and I did touch on it very briefly in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Uh, actually, the Quran says that Adam was a giant. So if you want to know one reason why I'm not a Muslim, uh, then that's definitely one reason that would be right up there. But this kind of overlaps a little bit with the answer I gave for the previous question regarding which came first, the dinosaurs or the Nephilim. And I say that because, again, I'm going to refer back to Genesis 6. You know what? I think I'll just read it out and we'll have a look at it. I'm not going to go too deep here because that'll kind of spoil our future podcast episodes where we are definitely going to go very deep into this text. But I can't really refuse an opportunity to answer a question like this, and I kind of dug myself a hole when I spent almost the entire first season answering questions about Genesis 4. So I guess it is what it is. Here is the text. Again, this is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so I'm probably preaching to the choir in this audience, but just so that we're clear, the word Nephilim is best translated as giants for reasons that we will address at some point on the podcast in considerable depth. But I haven't got the time for it now. If you can't wait till we get to season six of the podcast, I would suggest that you avail yourself of a copy of my book. You can get it on Amazon. If you have any trouble finding it, you can just follow the links from my website, giantanswers.com. So it's actually common for many readers of this passage of scripture to interpret this as meaning that the Nephilim coexisted alongside humanity at this time, or more to the point of this question, that the Nephilim actually constituted what was the human race at this time. But I would suggest that it's far more coherent and logical to understand the text as describing the events that led to the origin of the giants, rather than simply mentioning that they were there as if that fact had no connection to the context in which we find that reference in the story. What do I mean by that? I mean that if the giants are just mentioned incidentally as a side note, like they just coexist alongside the humans, then it really is a pointless footnote and a waste of space in a time where written words were precious and valuable and not to be wasted. The Bible never adds extra details just for the sake of it. Every word is important, and as Dr. Michael Heiser often says, if it's weird and it's in the Bible, it's definitely important. So I think that forces us to consider that the mention of the Nephilim is actually an important element in the story being told in Genesis 6. That leaves us with the other interpretive option that perhaps this text is trying to tell us that everybody in this period of time was a giant. I've got one question about that perspective. If everybody on your basketball team is 6 feet 9 in height, are they giants or are they normal? The answer is they're normal because the norm for the population determines what the exceptions are. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite in the 10th century BC, and you come across somebody who's six feet nine in height, that guy's a giant. That's not normal. That's an exception to the rule in a time and place where the average Israelite male stood at five foot three. So if the entire human population has some exceptional height, would they be called giants? The answer is no, because that would just make them normal, like everybody else, who's also the same size. We need to accept that the language of giants is intended to convey some exceptional size rather than something ordinary. And I hear you asking, but... Doesn't that just mean that they were giants compared to the normal-sized people that came after the flood? But the text does say those three magic words, and 
also afterward. So if you want to argue that everybody before the flood was a giant, then you have to be consistent and say that they were also giants after the flood, which is clearly not the case for the majority of the human civilization as we know it. You'll also find that there are people using this idea of giant humans before the flood as part of a general theory that everything was bigger back in those days, including plants and animals. This is a side effect of the literalism that brought us classic hits like the flat earth dome cosmology model that you've heard so much about. Basically, the idea is that there really was a solid firmament in the sky and that it was a dome made of ice, which sustained higher than average atmospheric pressures within the structure, contributing to the larger than normal growth of living organisms in this biodome scenario. There's a bit of a scientific rationale behind this, which I alluded to in my book, so I'm just going to read you one of the footnotes. The square cube law, first described by Galileo in 1638 AD, states that an increase in an object's surface area corresponds to a proportionally larger increase in its volume. This means that in the case of living creatures, the larger they get, the higher their muscle and bone density needs to be in order to support their mass, and the more oxygen they require in order to support life. Given that atmospheric pressure is constant, the argument stands that giant creatures would be unable to take in the required volume of oxygen to support their cellular function, and thus would not have the strength to support their own mass. As noted by J.B.S. Haldane in his 1928 essay on being the right size, the bones of an elephant must be proportionately larger than the bones of a mouse because they must carry proportionately greater mass. He illustrates this by referencing allegorical giants in literature. Consider a man 60 feet high. The giants, Pope and Pagan, in the illustrated Pilgrim's Progress. You might be familiar with that story from your childhood if you uh, grew up with that. These monsters weighed a thousand times as much as Christian. Every square inch of a giant bone had to support ten times the weight borne by a square inch of human bone. As the average human thigh bone breaks under about ten times the human weight, Pope and Pagan would have broken their thighs every time they took a step. So you're saying then that the sheer weight of these enormous creatures would be enough to crush their own bones because they don't have the, the density to be able to support their weight and still be able to circulate oxygen and, you know, just live? Yeah, in a normal atmosphere, yeah. And even if you reduce the density of structures within the body so that the weight didn't crush the skeleton, you'd end up with bodies so massive and so relatively light for their size that they would just get blown about like balloons in the wind. Let's try to picture that for a moment. So the theory is that inside a pressurised firmament, the atmospheric oxygenation could support giant organisms, including giant humans, because they wouldn't crush under their own weight in a dense atmosphere. It sounds good until you remember a few things. Number one, not all creatures back then were giants, as we've already seen. So it's a bit inconsistent. Number two, the idea of a solid firmament is nothing more than a mistranslation resulting in a misunderstanding of the nature of the heavens, as we discussed extensively in season one of the show. Please go and listen to those episodes if you haven't heard them. Number three, even now, without a physical firmament providing an oxygen-rich environment, we get people over seven feet tall today. If we don't need a dome to make that possible today, they didn't need one then. It's not like Robert Wadlow experienced a different atmosphere from the rest of us, although he probably got rained on first. Shaquille O'Neal doesn't live in a bubble. He'd be the bubble boy. That'd be funny. Uh, point four, 
The Bible says that it was the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men that produced the giants, not the air pressure. I might also mention that Galileo brought us not only the square cube law, but also detailed observations of the moon and mathematical proof of a heliocentric solar system by observing the phases of the planet Venus. This means that Galileo was an authority on whether a solid firmament exists or not. So either there's a dome up there and therefore everything is giants, or the moon really is very far away and orbits a spherical Earth as we revolve around the sun. I'll give you a hint. Only one of those two options is based in reality. So what I'm saying is that the same guy who brought us the square cube law also debunked the firmament and the entire geocentric model, which means that you can't have a flat earth full of giants living under a dome. And that is evidentially true anyway, because not everything living on the earth is giant sized, as you can clearly see by simply looking out the window. It's kind of funny, actually, that Galileo lived around the same time as Martin Luther, a little bit later. And Galileo got in trouble with the church for showing his science on this issue. Not long before that, Luther was out there butchering the biblical text to give us hand-drawn illustrations of the Bible's poetic literature taken far too literally, and creating these depictions of dome cosmology, which he believed to be the affirmation of scripture. And then you've got scholars like John Walton telling us that since Luther had these illustrations in his Bible, that means ancient Israelites must have had the same concept of cosmology that Luther thought they did. I've actually got that on record that he makes this argument it's hilarious. It's, it's actually a question that I put to him that led to him saying that. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to take that seriously, really. Yeah, well, I didn't. Anyway, we better wrap it up there. We're, we're going to continue the discussion in Genesis 3 next week. You still have time to send in some feedback in the lead up to our 50th episode coming soon. And as always, I really do want to hear your giant questions. So send them in, giantanswers.com, and we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Bye for now. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Graves Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com, GiantAnswers.com, Please follow and have some socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I did bring to work uh, some of my homemade chili. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I made a chili sauce with uh, habanero peppers. Yeah, they, uh, they all gave it the tick of approval. Excellent. No, hefty cough of uh, searing lungs and I will put in 
enmity, and I always going to be enmity. It doesn't even start with an M, like it's E N M, and everyone goes enmity, enmity, and I will put enmity. I did it again. I will put enmity. Nobody, nobody even says enmity. And then uh, last night I went uh, rock um, bouldering. It's the first time in a while. I haven't been bouldering. Have you been smouldering like the rock? Possibly. Not Not really sure that I understand the concept of bouldering. but uh... It's basically um, uh, you pay someone and then they teach you humility. Right. Yeah, so they... these are bigger rocks, are they? These are, yes, um, rock-like shapes. Yeah, it's like indoor rock climbing, effectively. Yeah, I don't but... know. Bouldering sounds a bit bit ambitious for me. I, th- I might have to start with something smaller, maybe like pebbling or something. Sure. Just start with uh, like little stones. Yep. Well, that's exactly what we're going to figure out here as we as we go through this. <laughs> I'm laughing too much. Right. <laughs> this is serious business. <laughs> Just step in. Staring me. Right. <laughs> They're full of chocolate. <laughs> this, this, this can go on for some time. Right. It, it wasn't that funny. <laughs> <laughs> Laughter has overtaken logic. Oh, dear. Yeah, and why is that? So when God spoke to the man, he said it would die, but then he doesn't die. And when God speaks to the serpent, he doesn't even say that the serpent will die, but the serpent gets a curse. Did you say serpent? <laughs> I will put I will put a manatee between you and the the sea serpent. <laughs> Did I? Okay, I'll say that again. I will put a T between the S and the serpent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try that again. Uh, all right, are you ready? Now that I've done that cough, I'm ready. Ooh, McBean. <laughs> so this is what validates the method. The methods. The methods of a prosit. Oh, did, right did you hear that? I did. What did you crack? It was like... Um, did you get your bone density checked? Yeah, I know. That was like a bone in my spine. Like... Um, Recalibrating, yeah, like behind the behind the sternum. Oh, just sort of went pop. We got it's our latest episode yet. Yes, and our most recent. Uh, yeah, that's true. What's the A team? I seem to remember the theme song for some reason. I've, I've never got it out of my head. Da, 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 da.